Former U.S. National Rugby Team Captain. Team Captain. Head Coach and General Manager. General Manager. Now, the co-founder and CEO of the New England Free Jacks. Now, now, Full Contact CEO with Alex Magleby. Hey everyone, thanks for joining Full Contact CEO today. I'm your host, Alex Magleby. I'm also co-founder and CEO of the New England Free Jacks. Joining me today is none other than DJ, comedian, award-winning author, former Wasp, England International, British and Irish Lion, even earning the cover of The Dude Stad, James Haskell, all the way from Hasland, joining us today. James, so excited to have you. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. What, what an honor. I, you know, I love, the, I love America. It's good to be on a, finally be on a podcast over here. Yeah, great. Great to have you. So just going like a bit of your bio, you know, you grew up in the UK. Whereabouts? So I was born in Windsor, not in the castle with the Queen, yeah. but not not far off. Uh, I know a lot of I mean, the stereotype yeah, is a lot of Americans. Are you part of royalty? What does that mean yeah, to us? Do you, do you know the Queen? We so, know Harry. Uh, he's an American. Yeah, yeah. And he's a ginger. That's what, yeah. Do you like your fish and chips, cup of tea? Queen. Yeah. But no, I was, yeah, I was born in Windsor. I grew up in uh, Berkshire. And then ultimately, I ended up kind of playing and living around the in the world. And the last team I played for was in Northampton. That's where I am today, but which is in the middle of the country. And then I'm going down later to London, but hopefully at some point we'll be moving closer to, to London as a lot of my work is that way. Yeah, I'd imagine. And with the media and just all of the things that you absolutely do. I, I don't know how you do it, but um, <laughs> how you do it. So you went to Wellington College? I, I did. Wellington because I coached Madison Hughes, you know, who's captain of our sevens team here in the U.S., but Maddie was from Wellington and played for our high school Americans, and then I coached him at university here. Great guy. Seems like a great school, clearly. Yeah, it's incredible. I mean, uh, when I was there, you know, I think, I mean, I I didn't go there to play rugby. I went there my because my dad went there and I went there kind of, it was a very multifaceted place. And obviously I was lucky enough, my parents could afford to, or just about afford to go there. It's obviously now turned into a completely different school. You know, the it's one of the top schools in the world. I mean, they let me in on my kind of grade. So it wasn't, it was certainly wasn't about, well, it wasn't about good looks. It was about academia. It was about, you know, if you, if you sort of could talk the talks, hit someone quite hard in a tackle and just about behave yourself, you were allowed in. And that's kind of what I did. And, and then I left Wellington at 18 and I went straight into Wasps. I deferred my university entry. And yeah, and basically 19 and a half seasons, I was still playing rugby and I, and I retired 2019. And yeah, well, we are where we are now. And there's obviously a lot of water under the bridge between between now and then. Yeah, being a pro, I mean, you you were, you were the first, the youngest uh, player for Wasps. Is that true? The first youngest professional, the youngest professional? Yeah, at that time. So so I, so I basically, I made my debut for Wasps when I was 18 against Harlequins, away at Harlequins. I'd actually... In my last year at school, when I was 17, I went and I, I did a pre-season and, and a few warm-up games with a WAS and then went back to school, which was a bit of a, in hindsight, a bit of an odd thing, really. It kind of spoiled my last year of rugby because I had a taste of that ultimate professionalism. I took things very seriously and I, you know, it was kind of the last bit of pressure-free rugby I was ever going to play, really. And I could have, you know, I should have enjoyed it a bit more, but, you know, I kind of got that mindset. And then I, and then I finished my uh, A-levels and... You know, a couple of months later, I was in doing pre-season with Watson. I was with them for five years, and then I left to go to Stade Francais, and I came back for for six years. But my debut, I just turned eighteen. I broke Joe Worsley's record. Obviously, Joe Worsley, British and Irish Lions, an England player and, and, and coach, and kind of all-round legend. And I, I now, I mean, I think there's probably way younger kids now, but at the time, I broke uh, I broke the record. But you know, there's some kids now getting debuts at 
17 you know what i mean so uh, the game has, has moved on did you did you at the time were you like i know i want to be a professional rugby player like you know mid high school you're like this is what i'm going to no. do or? no i never wanted to be a rugby player i wanted to be in the special forces or i wanted to drive a digger that's what i wanted to do really i, I, I sort of i was one of those kids at school that that my, my parents weren't pushy parents but they encouraged me to to do things they wouldn't really tolerate the oh i don't want to do it you know i don't like it well have you tried it no we'll go and try it and then make a decision and i i basically did everything at school so i did all the sport not to any great standard but i had to go at everything tennis football hockey we used to do a thing called field gun which is a bizarre english thing that was based on the, the army and navy used to do it and, and, and the navy particularly uh, where they used to dismantle guns like cannons and stuff carry them over walls and build like amazing frames and stuff they used to do a big a big event in london and we would we did that at my school, so I did that. I did school plays. I, I represented the chess team once, won one game and retired on a win. Did, you picked the, 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 their best player or worst player? Like, well, well, I don't know. They just put me They put me with some kid, and I beat him. And, Probably scared shitless looking at Well, <laughs> that's what people said. They said that I basically I beat him because I threatened to smash his head in, but I didn't. I beat him because at my in my house at school was a very, very academic house. I don't know why. Because my, my dad went there. That's why I got him. But I was the only one out of my year who basically didn't go to Oxford or Cambridge. And so a lot of them were into chess. So I said, listen, give me give me like an opening attacking format. And they did it. And I just beat this kid. And I knew enough to beat him and I beat him. But but I, they wouldn't even give me the honour of that. They basically said that I threatened to break his hand if it didn't. But I didn't. But So I represented the chess team. I did everything. And then it was only when I started at about uh, 14, 15, when I got to play in something called the Daily Mail Tournament, which w culminated in a final game at Twickenham. And uh, I got the opportunity to play at Twickenham, went all the way, we won. I got a taste of it because of that. And I basically, you know, I got because I got an opportunity to, to trial for England on the 16s, I got all the way to the final trial and I didn't get in. And because of that disappointment, it was my first real disappointment that I'd had. I sort of, you know, didn't take it very well. And, and basically my old man said to me, look, you can either see this as a, you know, a lesson that you didn't put the extra work in, which I didn't. You didn't make the sacrifices you should have done. And you can come back and trial for England under 18s and work harder and do whatever. Or you can just play rugby for a bit of fun. And do you know what? I was of that mindset. I was like, right, I'm going to show them. So I, I started training with a personal trainer who was a friend of the family he used to come in three times a week at school. I was training the gym. I was running up hills. I was doing extra fitness. I was doing everything that most kids weren't doing. And about a year and a half later, I came back, you know, four kilos heavier, way fitter, way stronger. And it, and I got into England under 18s. And I captained them. And it basically taught me that if you put the work in, anything's possible. And and because of that, I I then got an opportunity to be in front of Wasp's radar. And once you're on, on that path and you're of that men mentality of trying to be the best you can be, and tried to be want what's next. I just kept going and going and going. And once I got Davy for Wasps, I wanted to play for England. Once I got for England, I wanted to play for the Lions. And you know, I didn't want one cap, one fifty caps, and just so and so on and so on. And it was always about new competition, new people coming in. Could I keep challenging myself? Could I keep reinventing myself? The press weren't always my fans, so they'd always do me in the eye, say I was shit or whatever. And because of all that, I I I basically just kept. Wanting to work hard, kept wanting to stick two fingers up to everyone, and that's basically what got me through my career. Really, like, it's like in here in New England, it's New England versus the world, same type of attitude. But you, you mentioned something that's like really pertinent: is mentorship and your father stepping in and saying, "Listen, here's an opportunity to learn. Here's a lesson opportunity." And I think that is such a key in so many sporting careers and just successful careers is it's finding that mentorship. 
who besides your father, it sounds like in, in your books, he's, he's been a key. Your family's been really, really important. But who else have you found that? I'd say, I'd say, I'll be honest with you, right? So it takes a long time to, to learn this. But I think, first of all, if you have the mindset that you're never the finished article, that you can always improve, like you can always get better. And and that isn't a, in, the, in, in a flippant way. That is right. You know, if you said, for example, I want to be an international rugby player, that's a very abstract thing. So many ifs and buts and hows and whys. If you split your life into manageable sections which you can control and you understand that for example saying i want to get fitter well what the hell does that look like you've got to break it down even further what is it i want what kind of fitness is it i want how do i go about doing that what will help me get fitter well you can break it down to another section underneath that nutrition well i could eat better i could hydrate better what does eating better look like okay i need to understand protein carbohydrates then you go back to what you know what are my limitations around fitness what is it i can do do i want to be really good at running does the fitness i want suit the thing I'm doing at the moment, how can I change it? And then one of the strings off all of that is there's always somebody doing something that you want, but better than you. So yeah. go and learn from them, ask them, find people, don't deal, don't accept the hand that you're dealt. Don't, don't, don't kind of go, well, you know, for example, in my books, I talk about it, like my, with my medical stuff, you know, you get the, the, the you go to the club doctor and the physio and they say, this is your diagnosis. I'd be like, okay, thanks so much for that. Go and find someone who's the best in their field, pay for it, ask them the question get the best plan or, you know, you've got one career and one life and one opportunity. And there's always people that will look to help you and you can find them. Sometimes you have to pay for it. Sometimes they aren't the right people, but you will eventually find it. And I think if you, if you focus on everything you can control, leave nothing to, to chance, you know, and, and obviously you only worry about things you can control. So do people like me? Doesn't matter. You know, does the coach like me? Doesn't matter. Can I just be the best person I can be? Can I train the hardest? Can I manage that? And if, if anything that's outside of my control affects it, there's nothing I can do about it. But if you sit at home going, oh, I want to be a better rugby player, but you're not eating better, sleeping better, looking at your even the mattress you sleep on, how cool your room is at night, you know what your training's like, you know all the areas, all the facets, then you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna fail, and, and it's your fault you aren't achieving. If you do all of that, everything, and you're still not getting picked, then then that's then it's something to do with something else. But most people can look at themselves and say, I'm not doing what I need to be doing and i think with the mentor stuff you know my dad was was important and motivating and supporting but i i you know i found rugby players to watch a lot of like rich mccaw i spent hours watching him play i learned more watching him play and dissecting him game than i did from any coach ever yeah 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 awesome. he was amazing yeah he, he was on this 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 week's good bad rugby so and then things like nutritionists you know i went and found people in a different field who then became my mentors in that area i looked to coaches to build relationships you know there's no point if you don't get picked from your coach kicking stones and moaning and whining you know go up to the coach ask him listen what is it you want from me what does it you need to do go away and do it and if if you deliver everything undeniably and he still doesn't want to pick you and doesn't like you well you know find a new club find anything because it's not in your control but if you're doing everything then it's kind of quite nice peace of mind and i i found different mentors throughout my career and different coaches that that helped me but a lot of the time i sought out different people and i was quite self-reliant and i think a lot of players you know if you put ask a room of 20 players modern professional how many of you are self-reliant i don't think a lot of them put their hands up they still expect stuff to be done to them where if the mentality is you've got a short career how do you go after it what is it you can manage yourself what is it you can control and going after these things and for me that's the that's the the, the, the key to it all really and that was the key to my career was just always always trying to be better, always trying to find people that, that could help me and, and putting the work in, you know, and that and that for me was 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 a recipe for success.
I'd say more modern players, and I, I don't want to make this generational, but modern players are much better at, at you know, getting the work done, not drinking as much, all the kind of yeah. stuff. But I mean, playing even then, the 90s, but we were much more entrepreneur, perhaps. Entrepreneur. Yes. Like while I was playing, you had to figure out other things. You know, I had started a software analytics company and all and other pieces to, in order to make it all work. I think there was probably that. There's a, there's a differential. The opportunities existed for us because we had to. Where yes. now the, the have to part isn't necessarily there. We, we kind of, in a good way, on a performance level, cater, but we're missing, I think, that gap of self reliance going out. I mean, all the stuff that you've done, it's just, how does that new yeah. generation figure that out? How do we help them figure that out? Yeah. And, and, and look, you know, I think it's, I think for me, it's, you know, it's different because, you know, you guys, well, you know, slightly back in the day, a lot of people crossed over. They had jobs as well. They had life experience. They didn't, they weren't born off a conveyor belt of players systematic you know they had other things to your life they had more life experience players now they don't have that there's no requirement for it they all they need to do is eat sleep rugby but i think with that you lose some spontaneity you lose some life experience you your life becomes everything about rugby when actually it's the worst thing it can be you know the, the person who lives and breathes their sport entirely i think is not it's not how you want to be you need to understand when it's time to switch on, when it's time to switch off, why you have diversity in your life, because it actually allows you to focus more on your job, because you know when it's time to work, you can switch off, you're not carrying your your game with you everywhere. And these modern players don't have that. And I, I you know, I, I worry for what, you know, they get paid more, which is great, but I worry for what do they do? What else life experience they have when, you know, just being, like, look at, you know, I mean, football is a different in this country, you know, they get paid a fortune, but a lot of them can't string a sentence together, don't want to do media, don't trust the media. And luckily they earn enough money if some of them are sensible not to have to do that again. Yeah, but yeah. for some people who don't, what are you going to do next? Well, I just, you know, I love rugby. It's like there's only so many coaching jobs. There's only so much you can do. And Even the All Blacks. Totally that's what I Coaching is totally different than playing. And there's only coaching is. Players. Yeah, it is very different. But I, I mean, I look at the All Blacks, you know, I look at these guys, I, having lived and played in New Zealand, you know, there are now, you know, there are legendary All Blacks. There are, you know, Dan Carters, you know, Richie McCaws, Mar Nonus. You know, these guys are are top of the top of the the scale. But it's a small place. What do all these <laughs> other All Blacks do who who don't go all the way or don't become legendary? They're still unbelievable players. But you know, they all talk about being humble. And they don't let them. You know, they don't have any personality. They don't do anything. And so I worry, what do you do next? Where, where, where do they go? Because there's only so many coaching jobs. And then that's why I love Ardy Severe. Ardy Severe first all black personality does his own podcast driving his own clothing range doing his own stuff doing the tiktoks doing whatever showing that kind of diversity knowing that you know when he finishes he could go into to potentially media or build his own brand for me and he still plays the house down and i just i, I look at these guys who are much more of a, a business head on and go look you know what what is it you could do and actually would it make you better because you were able to balance your life more yeah absolutely i mean so my wife calls that your original point, putting things in boxes, you know, and she's fantastic. She's a doc. And I think that's, you know, a very good point. You know, just, just the, the concept of do everything you possibly can that you can control, right? Have a plan, execute on the plan. And if it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. That's not something you control. Okay. You can walk away a happy person. I'm just curious if you've, if you've ran into that, I mean, you've had a very successful life. I think people see the successes. And they don't necessarily see all the failures and the disappointments when you have done what you thought was right and fair and you should get that you know, job or you should be the starting person or you know, whatever. The, you, sh you should have been successful in that regard and it didn't happen. Are there moments where that's happened to you and you're like, all right, well, 
Yeah, yeah, all the time, all the time. It happens to me on on, on a regular basis. It happens to me all the way through my career. Setbacks, disappointments, things you've you, you've done everything, and, you, and it doesn't go your way. And the honest answer is, is then that's why I spoke to a psychologist. You know, from the age of seventeen to thirty six, you know, I would speak to somebody to rationalise, to get tools to help build mental strength. And what people think about talking to psychologists, especially in rugby world and, and in men in general, is that you sort of imagine you lying on a chaise long, crying about things that happened in your childhood. That's not the case. It's, you know, if I said to you, you could run faster by buying these trainers, you'd go and buy these trainers, or you could lose weight by taking this pill, you'd go and do it. If I said you could change everything about yourself, your relationships, your determination, your success, deal with failure, loss, emotion, everything, feel better, sleep better by talking to someone and learning these tools, most people wouldn't do it and because they, they don't understand it. And for me, it, it, talking to a psychologist or a therapist or whatever, it doesn't stop you having a bad day but it teaches you to get back on track quicker than if you hadn't had those tools. It doesn't teach you not to be sad anymore. It doesn't teach you that you're not going to feel upset if a woman rips your heart out or whatever, but it will, you'll understand how to change your focus. And there's a, I think Tim Robbins says where, where focus goes, energy flows. And, and it's basically the same thing with, with failure. You know, yes, you should have an emotional reaction. Yes, you should be disappointed. You know, you can be, you can be, you know, upset and down and go, this is bullshit. Fuck this. Why am I doing it? But then, you know, how do I get back on track? How do I refocus? And and that's what I that's what I did. I had to work very hard at it. There were times where I, I didn't get it right, and there's times where I had to learn it. And it's a constant evolving process. But our brain is the most powerful tool we have, and and trying to gain some control or manage it in some way is, is super important. And if I hadn't had that, I would never have had the career I had. I wouldn't be sitting here. I wouldn't be as successful as I I had been. I wouldn't have done any of these things, um, and I would have fallen apart at the seams. And it's that's the key to it, you know, and that's, it's never not having a bad day. You can't, you know, it, it gives you a suit of armor to some respect, but actually it's, you know, how to get back on track, how to manage it, how to rationalize it and understand what to do. And it's a set of tools and it's just putting stuff into your arsenal. So at the right time you can pull it out and go, right, that's how I, that's how I deal with it. And what a flanker. And, and, and I love that. And it comes out when you're talking about young James Haskell, there's, I think three things that really stood out for me was your work ethic or learning how to work. Right. Your self-reliance, which you which you've really you know, talked about, but within that self-reliance is actually going out and seeking expertise, knowing that you're not the complete product. You don't have all the answers, and I think yeah. that's a lot of us. But you know, um, but where I have potentially failed is like, no, I can do it. I can do it all. I, I've got. Oh, I, I can do the accounting. I can do this piece. I can do all. I I got it. Right, yeah. and, and and not being willing to be vulnerable and be like, no, actually, I have no expertise in this world. I need to go out and find those tools and get other yeah. people to. To help me with that, and I think that's a really compelling. That comes across in what a flanker, yeah, amongst I mean, the, the anecdotes and the, the fun part. But I think those are really three key points. It's it, look for, for me. It's it, a lot of men struggle, but it's the, it's the easiest thing to actually do. Say, listen, I don't know how to do this. How do I go and do it? You know, but also being clear of what is it you want to do. So I talked about these like, abstract ideas of being a better rugby player, being a better businessman. They're so open ended. What is it you're actually trying to do, and, and who can help you? And, t- and turning around, going, I don't have the answers. Where can I get the answers? And actually, a lot of people want to help you, and it's being targeted. It's like you know, but also understanding. Like I give you an example at rugby club. You know, when Eddie Jones came up with injury, Eddie Jones says, "Listen, my my accelerations weren't good enough. I wasn't fast enough off the floor. My speed wasn't good enough." So, and Northampton was saying the same thing. So, I, so I, I was I was like, right, you know, how do I get better? What is it I need to do? Like accelerations. What does that look like? Go and reach out to people. But then I equally turned it on to my coach and said, right, tell me what in my daily weekly training plan looks like it's going to improve my acceleration. And they all shrugged their shoulders and said, well, exactly. I said, well, you need to extra. I said, no, no, no. 
you've got me for seven hours a day. Where, where in my training plan does it, it look like I'm going to develop anything? Well, we can't, no, no, where? Nowhere. So we're going to change, we're going to do, we're going to, we can't do individual. Yes, you can. And we do it and, and demand people because what a lot of people do is that they demand, they toe the party line. Yes, life is politics. You know, there's lots of players I know and I talked about it in the book, who have an individual sportsman's mentality, who are inherently selfish, but they forget there is a game to be played, seem to be doing the right thing. Like I, I did whatever I wanted, whenever I wanted. But if you ask me who was a good team man, everybody says a good team man. Every time coach go, oh, we see you've been training with this sprint coach, you've been doing this, we don't want you to do it. But yeah, I won't do it. I went off and did it. I don't like you don't I got one career, I don't care what you think I should or shouldn't do. I I've taken it, I've taken it under advisement, I've looked at it, I've made the right decision, go, this is the best thing for me. I'm going to do it. But does the club think I'm not doing it? Fine. Did I hide everything? Did I always go and see an extra physio? Yeah. In England camp, did I go and leave, you know, on a, tu- on, a tu- on a Tuesday before a day off in pieces, go and get physio and come in on a Thursday? I'd be like, wow, that injury's got better. I'd be like, yeah, miracle. I've been spending all day getting physio from a guy, Kevin Lidlow, doing doing what needed to be done. Be- because if I'd relied on them, I wouldn't have performed. And the point is you just massage your egos, balance everything out, but you look after number one, uh, you know, within reason. But then I know players that, you know, weren't massive keen on contact and didn't want to do extra fitness. So they kicked up a fuss. You know, I used to do the fitness that I needed to do. And then I would go and wake up at five in the morning, go to London, train with someone that to do the shit that I actually needed to do. Because that's the way you got to do it. And, you know, sometimes you have to balance it out. Maybe you have to feign a bit of a tight hamstring. I won't do the wasp fitness, but I'll do this other fitness or, or whatever. It was a constant balancing act. But that's that's life. You have to, you have to look after yourself because nobody, unfortunately, a gives a shit about you rather than as opposed. Well, nobody gives a shit about you as much as you give a shit about you. And also, nobody's going to ride over a hill and give you the career, give you the business, give you the relationship, give you the money. That's it. You, you, and anybody who thinks it, 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 they will do. We will fall short. And I think, you know, what sport teaches you is is almost a, a mirror image of life. We've got into this lovely thing now where we mediocrity is like acceptable. Oh, I'm okay if you're okay, and it's okay to be out of shape, or it's okay to do this thing, and it's okay just to be shit and don't. Eat what you want. Your life's too short. Fine. I love the I love the more people that say that because they just haven't got a grasp on life. Everything in life is a fight and is in and is about trying to be a competitive and get and you've never got anywhere. No one's ever got anywhere without having to work hard, being successful. Yeah. Unless you're Donald Trump and you get given a whole you know millions of pounds by your dad. Whatever. There's a few people that get the, the trust funds, yeah. but for most normal humans, you don't have that. And I think you have to understand that it's about working hard, fighting, being the best you can be, working every day. And, you know, and if you want to be average, if you want to get a medal for taking part, you crack on. But for the rest of us who are hungry to be successful and to make the journey from life, sorry, from birth to death, the best we can, it's a, it's a fight. And that's, and that's life. Do, willing to do what you weren't willing to do yesterday, you know, to continue to improve. And I, and I think you've got a whole career of trying to figure out ways to continue to improve, which is, yeah. which is a fantastic lesson for, for so many other folks. You know, and you, you you talked there about mentorships in terms of coaching up. You know, I had Tiger Shaw on this. He's head of U.S. Ski and Snowboard, and talking about Michaela Sheffer, the best skier in the world. And you know, when she was growing up, she grew up in my town here. And what her ability to do was to coach up, to to to, to upskill her coaches. And I think that's a skill that we don't work hard enough on to to teach our players, right, or to teach people within our business. Like we don't necessarily equip our leadership with the with the skills to give ownership to those folks to then manage up and like it's like it's very hierarchy and and we we don't actually to to give that skill sets and i just think it's a really really important piece there i think 
I think on that as well, like a lot about rugby and sport and in life is a teacher-pupil relationship. And a lot of people, especially men, talk about wanting to be challenged and have honesty and stuff, and they can't, they can't handle it. But yeah. equally, you know, you don't stand up a meeting and criticise the coach. You, you, you take to one side and say, listen, this is how I feel. This is this. This is this. This is what we do. And, and, you know, and understand the person you're talking to. And there are a lot of people, like there are a lot of men in particular who they, they're never going to change. They're never going to adapt. They're never going to understand. So you're just wasting your time. So find other people that can change the ideas or you have to, or you have to look after yourself. Or if you've got a progressive coach and say, look, you know, behind closed doors, have a meeting. You can say, look, you know, here's the stats as to why I need to do this. This is what's happening here. This is how I feel. This is what isn't going well. You know, let's let's do it. Have a, have a debate. Be be civil, be polite, and carry on. And just choose the right times to do it. I, you know, I think what a lot of people do is they get it wrong. They, they blow up in meetings. They blow up in, in training. You know, and, and any man or most men do not like to be challenged in front of other people. It, yeah. it doesn't, it's never going to end. It's never going to end well. So, Pick your battles. Understand the politics. Look at you. I love human psychology, body language. I, I spent all my time watching it. And like Chloe says, well, sometimes you go hard at people. Sometimes you don't. I said, yeah, because people I go hard at, they can take it. There's no point. There's no like my dad. Like my dad's never going to admit he's wrong on anything. There's no point me challenging him ever because he's just never going to be. He might be self-reflective two weeks down the line, but I know there's no point having it. It's like with Wass. You know, Wass was. I love my time Wass. I got on really well with Die Young. Brilliant, brilliant coach. But you know wasn't a guy that you would ever challenge in public. It was never going to end well. So it was about sort of chipping away conversation. Eddie Jones, the same. Like you, he's, he, well, you know, he would be able to communicate, but you need to do it at the right time, the right places. Other coaches, you could, you could do that, but it's understanding and, and being, and understanding how you learn and understanding how they learn. And it takes a bit of thought, you know, you just got to be a bit intelligent, take a bit of foresight into what's going to go on. You said something brilliant there. Just going to go about, you know, you went out and got additional resources to help you along with your career because you're making a decision about where you wanted to go. And then understanding that most of these institutions, our teams, our businesses, are limited resource. And so at the end of the day, there it's it's a, it's a, it's there's a compromise across the organization, and it may not have the world's best physio, or it may not be the best world best physio for you, you know, athlete of five. You know, and I think that's a really really key thing that, that you pointed out there. And your ability to be vulnerable, I think, underlies a lot of this. And that's not something that we see a lot necessarily. I mean, society's trying to move more in that direction where people can put their hand up and say, you know what, I'll give it a try. And if I fail, and if I fail in front of others, that's okay. Yeah. Um, we don't see a lot of that. How did, how did that come about for you? I think, it, again, it, I think it comes out of the desire to to get better. But I think the vulnerability things, it's, it's, it's you know, for me, it's always in the realms of common sense. You know, I know this current society, current thing we're in, we're in without getting too deep into it. You know, we, we're trying to right a lot of wrongs that happened before. We're, we're tr- trying to, you know, make the, the history. We're trying to change history because we, we don't like looking back and seeing what it what it was about. Yeah. For, forgetting that the reason we are where we are now is that we have our standards today because we learned that it wasn't right in the past. You can't go around, you know, spend more time being better today than worrying about what happened before just learn from it and it's the same with the vulnerability thing it's 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 important that people speak up about how they're feeling and everything else but also remember that you know at some point you know you've got to get on with it or not get on with it you know you you you, you need to, you, what the reason people speak up and you put yourself into a vulnerable position is to get the tools to get me better it's not just to sit around going oh woe is me I, you know i don't like this i don't like this it's fine like you need to vent but what's next 
well, you know, oh, we, we don't like this, we don't like that. People get very upset about being offended now. Like, there's a great, you know, there's a great, used to be a great system. I say something, you don't like it, you go, oh, I think you're a dickhead. And I go, well, I think you're a dickhead. And we all move on with our lives. Now yeah. we don't do that. Now we, you know, you think I'm a dickhead. Now you want to end, end my whole career, life, blow me up, cancel me, destroy me. Um, and and you, all you people want to gang up and do it. I, I, and, and it's just a very weird situation. You know, if you, if you used to watch TV and you didn't like a programme, you'd switch over. Now you write in and complain to try to get the show taken off the air. And, and I don't, I think it's a vocal minority for me, but I think a lot of people who understand vulnerability are like, look, you know, this is how I am. Be reflective, be self-reflective, because there's no point asking people for advice and then telling you going, well, you're lazy and you're, you're always late and you're not professional and look at the shape of your body and me going, fuck off. Uh, you know, and, and arguing with it. If if two people say that you're a bit of a dickhead, you know, you can take it and sort of with a pinch of salt. If everybody says you're a dickhead, then you're a dickhead, and you and that's the same thing. If if, if a coach says to you, listen, your, your nutrition's not on, you're late, your attitude isn't right. If that's reflected, you ask your mates, and they say, look, with all due respect, mate, you are late a lot to meetings. You are, you know, your diet's a bit sloppy. Then go surround yourself with good people and go, right, fuck, I need to change this. And that's because there's no point asking for help if you don't ever see yourself. And that's what being vulnerable is about, is being like putting yourself out again. Look, I'm not the perfect article. I'm not finished. I don't really like this. I don't like that. But how can I improve it? And how can I stop maybe made to feel this way? And what can I do? And that for me is important. But it's also at some point just getting on with it. You know, there's a lot of people who who just want to sit around moaning about everything. And they and unfortunately, what we're trying to do is create like a leveler where we're all in this together. And it's actually not because life is not fair. The diversity of talent, intelligence, genetics, well-being, life, where you're born, it's all over the place and you're never going to make it level. And so if, because we're trying to do that now, it means that we're like getting ourselves into such a twist instead of going right. You know, what can I do myself to be better? You know, don't worry about what they're doing over there. If you don't like it, switch off. Don't worry about it. You know, people say, oh, so-and-so is offensive. No, no, someone, someone isn't offensive. You find them offensive. It's an emotional reaction. It's not a thing. You know, oh, well, you know, shame on you. Well, you feel, that makes you feel shame. Well, you, you, you're, you're feeling shame. Shame isn't a thing. Shame isn't a person that comes and knocks on your door. And same thing with offensive. It's not a person that does it. You know, you, you, these are emotions. So look at how you're emotion. Look at how you don't want to feel it. Just don't, don't follow that comedian. Don't follow that person. Don't, you know, oh, you know like in your country, oh, Donald Trump. Well, let's just fucking zone him out. Like, if you don't like him, don't like him. I know obviously he became, became president or whatever. And obviously it was slightly, slightly difficult. But, you know, it's people get so het up about this stuff. Yeah. And, and it's just like, you know, worry about how you are. How, what are you like as a person? Are you doing the best you can be? Are you being nice to people? Because one of the, the three things or four things you can control, all you can control is how, how you treat your body, You've only got one of them. So if you decide to get morbidly obese or you decide to get super skinny or you have a disease and you don't address any of it, once your body's broken, you're never getting it back. You've got an amazing mind. Well, or, or everybody has a unique mind. Yeah. Could you make it better? Could you improve it at whatever level you are, whether that's through reading, learning, you know, whatever it might be, enjoyment, music, whatever you might do, could you, could you make yourself better? How you treat people, that's something you can control and how hard you work. That's it. That's it. There's nothing else. I don't think there's anything else. There's nothing. There's nothing else you can. I mean, you know, there's nothing. There's nothing else you've got any control over. Can, you know, oh, I don't want to get ill. Well, I've got no control over that. I want to. You know, there's nothing else that you can. You can. Full you control. can do. Full control. Yeah, and that's it. Full control. And I think once you once you understand that life is about that, 
then then it things become a little bit easier and then you suddenly realize well you know what what can i do to be more honest and more open and and i think people because of social media people are pretending that they don't have bad days like i have bad days i have good days i'm a bit of an arsehole i'm a bit of an acquired taste i'm perfectly happy with that i don't i don't want to be it'd be very nice to be all friend, all you know all things to all men i'm sure i'd be well wealthier and stuff but I wouldn't be able to say fuck shit, swear, do you know, be a bit a bit edgy, which I I just is naturally me. It's you. Exactly. It, it's brilliant. And I mean you should be a motivational speaker, first of all, add it to your list. My roster <laughs> of things. <laughs> your roster of things. I, I don't know if it was in Ruck Me or What a Flanker, just speaking of social media, an anecdote where you got some, you know, not some nice comments on one of your social posts about being a wanker or something and it was you know some teenage boys or whatever, and you ended up calling the headmaster. <laughs> yeah, yes. is, that, is yeah. that true? Is that really? Happening? Yeah, yeah, it's true. I, t- I told some of the lads at this with England, they were like, "You're a fucking snitch," and I was like, "No, no, no." My point was that I, I was, I played the England game, and we won or whatever or lost or whatever, and these, and then got loads of comments. People always go, "Oh, you shit, retire, you're an idiot, whatever." Loads of loads of you know, kill yourself, loads of stuff. And I remember I just saw these things like. You, and it's like this kid, well, you're gay. So, okay, you're a wanker, you're shit, you know, all this. Stuff. And I looked at one of their pages and, and I, it had his school in the, the title. And then I looked at another another comment and it was the same school. And they all had this little like turtle emoji in their thing. And I looked at them and all, eight or nine comments were all of the same school and all this little gang. And I was like, well, first of all, you're fucking worst, you like people, trolls I've ever met. Because you basically put your house address on there. And I was thinking, I was sick of it. And I was like, do you know what? There's very rarely an opportunity to educate because, you know, in one of these things, because I when I was younger, I posted stuff on social media, not nothing. But it was stuff like I didn't get picked for England. And I was like, you know, I'm going to come back stronger and, you know, beat this challenge and, you know, whatever. And it would be in the papers next day. Nothing bad. Or I or I someone would write something back to me and I'd insult them and I'd be in the paper or the Daily Mail for saying some shit, you know. So I learned that you not always that well. I still fuck up now, but learned that whatever you put on social media, you know, it will come back and get you. The world is full of nutters. You know, there was a story that's about a guy who wrote a book in, and this woman left an online review and he drove down to where she lived from Scotland. She opened the door and he threw acid in her face, right? That's obviously an extreme, extreme. And the guy was a nut box and went to prison. But shit like that, it happens all the time. So I was, I saw this thing with the kids and I, and I thought, you know what? I can't go back and write to these kids and say anything, you know, even though I wanted to. So I thought, you know what, I'll call the school up and I, and I say to them, look, by the way, you you know, you've got eight of these pupils are all writing stuff on me, but they're also writing homophobic stuff. They're always they're writing stuff. They, they're just idiots, right? So I called up them and I spoke to the deputy headmaster and he was like, wow, you know, I can't believe it. You know, I'll string them all up. And I was like, no, 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 relax, relax. I'll, I'll, I'll come in and see it because I think it's a good it was in Twickenham, the school. Yeah. It wasn't far from me. Yeah. So I took my wife to with me because I thought it was a bit more of an accessible, more friendly kind of vibe. And I turned up to school, walked into school, and I sat down in the headmaster's office, and he brought in these 12 kids. There were more, I didn't realise, but they'd, all, they'd obviously all come clean. Like, they'd obviously been insulting me because there was more than the eight, I thought. Came in, they're all standing there, and I stayed sitting down. I just said, listen, guys, I recognise a few of you from online. You've got Some of you got some stuff to say to me. And they all went quiet. I said, well, you know, I remember, so you, you you said I was gay. Do you want to say that to me now? And obviously they didn't. And then one kid at the back started crying. And I didn't, I didn't raise my voice or do anything. I just said, lads, look, I'll be honest with you. I found out who you were within one click on social media. And I said, 
I don't care what you said to me. I want to understand that you can't go around saying stuff like that to people because I said, people can find you within two seconds now. And if I was a nut job, I just parked outside your school and just got you on the way. So, it, you know, what I, I think this is a good lesson to understand. I know all of you have deleted your comments, but I've got screenshots of all of them. So if you go to apply for a job or you go to work somewhere and, you know, shit like this is sitting around, we see people like, Kevin Hart, you know, his dream was to present the Oscars. He made some homophobic jokes. He apologised to him at the time or afterwards. He wouldn't apologise again, rightly so, I think. And they cancelled him or tried to cancel him in that respect. People, this stuff stays online forever. The whole belief of like yesterday's, today's newspaper is tomorrow's chip paper is bullshit. Everything lasts everywhere. And I basically said to them, look, you know, you you need to understand that this is that this has happened. I've got this stuff. Please make sure that you don't do it again. Then they they obviously all apologised. I you know I was very calm and relaxed about it. And then they, then they all wrote to me, and I replied to each one of them saying, look, you know, don't worry about it. It's fine. And, and it was just a good lesson to, to for them to learn because, and I think it just it's kind of a nice wake up call, really, because you know, the kids like that, you know, now calling someone gay or having another history, it just they just wouldn't be able to get a job. The people just, you know, I think a lot of employees just search people's social media and, and they just forget about it. And I just thought it was quite a nice lesson. But as I said, I told the other lads, they were like, you're a fucking snitch going around beating up school kids. So I, I didn't beat up anyone. I just said, and I, and I said, I never got up and I took Chloe with me and she was, you know, she's a much more friendly face than I am. Yeah. I wish I wish those kids after would be like, can we get an autograph? And then one of them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I did. I did sign this, the letters back to them, so maybe they kept it. But I'm not sure they want to keep but a letter. One of them was just like, you're still a wanker. Yeah, yeah. I did. Yeah. I them. I don't mind if you still think yeah. I'm a wanker, but just don't just don't write it online. It's okay. So you just did a comedian uh, comedy tour. Like, where did that come from? Yeah. So it's an interesting one. I actually did an interview with the BBC, and they spiced it up. I said to them one day. I would like to do stand-up. I'd like, to, I'd love to challenge myself. I think it'd be really cool. I obviously do a lot of speaking stuff in terms of corporate stuff. Like, you know, I was talking to Airbus the other day on on motivation or, or UBS at kind of mental health, or I'm at a local rugby club telling anecdotes. And I wrote these two books, decided to do the James Haskell show, which was kind of 90 minutes, two 45-minute blocks of kind of stories, essentially stand-up, but, you know, not it was for a rugby audience. Do you know what I mean? There's one thing going and doing that in, in you know, 600,000 people place of people who want to come and see you versus doing, you know, a stand-up in a comedy place where no one's got any idea who you are yeah. and they don't get any of your references. But it was still really kind of exhilarating. I absolutely loved it. I couldn't, I couldn't have enjoyed it more. So I want to do more dates, 2022, 2023. Were those most from the past, like anecdotes from the past? Oh, like everything. They're like stuff I haven't put in the books. They are, there's, you know, there's stories about how my career started, some of the funny stuff, some stuff about royal wedding I went to that I couldn't put in any of the books. Loads of things, but all of us kind of, I mean, it's probably like four or five stories in each section and the little asides to people and funny bits. And yeah, I mean, you know, and some of it's, some yeah. of it's spiced up. And I just love that interaction with the crowd. And all the show is me just walking around the stage with a mic, just taking the piss. You're just a performer. It's fantastic. How, how do you keep that fresh? Like, like thinking about the books, right? I mean, they're they're two totally different books, even though they're back to back, right on top of each other. Both very relevant um, to today's audience. What, like, how did you keep that going? And is there a third book on the way? Well, there is a third book actually, much more about mindset. Okay. Which I finished, which I'm editing now, which is coming out in this awesome. September. But I got a bit of time to obviously finish that out. The first two were. The first one was meant to be like an autobiography, you know, but the fun parts, I didn't want to create another kind of, you know, oh, we're, you know, it was England versus New Zealand at Twickenham, you know, 10 minutes to go. What did someone say? There's plenty of people who've done that better than me 
what was what was I about? You know, I'm a massive show off. I'm a storyteller, and exactly what you said, a performer. And I wanted that to come across in these in these books. And what a flanker was kind of an all over the place kind of potted history of what I'd done. And then when I wrote that book, I got contacted by a lot of teammates who were like, Haskell, did you did you put that story in the book? And I was like, No, but I fucking will do in the next book. And then I made a note on my phone. And I had like 30. Wait, please, no, please, no, don't. That's what I mean. People were like sweating. So I've, I've managed, I haven't, I haven't thrown anyone under the bus, but there was kind of, people absolutely loved it. And I found that I had, you know, I didn't struggle for stories at all. Will there be another one? There will be, but not, not in the format of the storytelling stuff. I think I'll, I'll potentially live a bit more of my life and then see what other funny shit I get up to and put it into it, put it into it. What I loved about them, both of them, but there's an honesty to them, which is fantastic, but you didn't, yeah, you didn't take it out on anybody. You didn't, I mean, you didn't go deep and angry. You you see a lot of times in, in memoirs, you know, it's a chance to really vengeance comes through. And that's mm. what I really appreciated. There were some great anecdotes, hilarious. Um, I think I think you're exactly right. I didn't want to. It wasn't about like, oh, I finally get to talk. But I actually did get to put my side of stuff across. Because of that teacher-pupil relationship, a lot of times in my career, I decided to bite the bullet and take the t- hit for the team because it wasn't going to create the right optics. It wasn't the thing to do. In writing this book... I was very, what I tried to be was like, look, this guy's a good guy. This is what they did. Lots of people found it very beneficial. I didn't enjoy it because of this, this, and this, but I understand that. But with a reflection of I'm an acquired taste, I understand my limitations. Um, and it was never about, you know, needless to say I had the last laugh or to throw anyone to the bus. It was not meant to be like that. There was, you know, there was more extreme things I could have put in there, but actually... I didn't need to. It was never about that. And it was about to making an entertaining book that kind of broke the mold of what autobiographies have been because they've ultimately become glorified training guides with, you know, some sort of anecdotes, but a very sanitized. Everyone's worried about getting sued. So I got a barrister to read through both of them twice. Lawyers, everything, looked at it, dismantled it. And touch wood, I, I haven't been sued yet. But, you know, you never know. <laughs> Not yet, at least. No. But I think that was a good part. Is like even like you would talk about someone or something or an event, and and you'd say, "But listen, I understand there's another side to the story. Yeah. I understand perhaps they were coming from a different angle at the time, and even talking about old coaches and, and mm. all that kind of stuff." A hundred percent. I'm eating. Sorry for anyone oh, listening. Cool. I am. You got to fuel up. I have to go fuel up because I've got to go to London a bit and go. And uh, I've done another collaboration with Defected Records. I've done my something called a back road. Yeah, so I've got a thing. Um, I did these things on, they're available on Spotify, Apple Music called Back Row Beats. Yeah, um, awesome. We just finished volume six and it's coming out in on Friday to launch. Like, who owns the IP? Right? So, when you write, like, you know, when you do a concert, like two by sevens, yeah, beats, are those all your original beats? Are you allowed because it's a concert? They have a licensing agreement, you can I, run other people's music. Like, how I don't that- know, I don't know. I've, you know I've never looked into it. I just, whenever anyone's paid me to, to DJ, I assume they have a music license, and that's how you and that's, that's how, how you do it. We have a music license, so you could yeah. come in and mix other people's music, yeah, yeah, I'm not, monetizing it, like putting it on a record. I'm not monetized, yeah, I don't monetize it. So, things like the back row beats volumes you know we've done five previously people absolutely love them and you know the idea is their tunes to work out to to train to to party and crazy you know, numbers, right you have a crazy number of listens on oh yeah so so my so i've got so back then i've got my back row radio I I obviously got only one name i can refer to as my dj for some reason but i got back row beats i've done with defected and they're standalone yes there's some unique mixes but my back row radio 
which is what I do once a month, is my kind of music show. Yeah, I mean, we had, I got the figures in, we'd had on average a million point something listeners through digital radio. And in total, we had something like 400,000 um, downloads on on this. And this was just me, you know, I mix it once a month. I voice over it myself. I mix it live at, at home and put it out there. And people really like it. And, and it was my vehicle because, again, this goes to this mindset. I sat down with someone and said, right, I want to get into DJing. Well, you you know, you're a net former rugby player. You're always going to be seen as like a, a Z-list celebrity. I said, yeah, fine. What do I need to do? Well, you know, you need to do a radio show or a podcast. I said, fine. I went away and did it and build it up. And they're like, well, okay, yeah, you've done the radio show, but you need to make your own music. So they're like, right, I went and did a production course. Then I started making music. Um, I started making music with my, uh, my production friend of mine, a guy called Alex. And we got three tracks signed. And I've got like four or five finished as well and, and make more. So every time someone tells me can't do it or what do I need to do, I just go and do it. And then, you know, if, if things aren't going your way and I'm not DJing where I want to be, you're like, well, what else can I do? And it's like, you know, I sat down yesterday. I was thinking, right, I need to get this music out to better people. Sat on Instagram, saw DJs, saw their labels, contacted them. And luckily, you know, because I've got a, a little bit of a profile, people are a bit more inclined to reply. So then I get their email. I send them the tracks. Like, while I was on the email to you, someone wrote back, look, this isn't for me. Fine. I was like, brilliant. I'm going to keep working and see what see, see what can be done. That's great. How did you, did you, did you grow up in a techno in house and were you like, all right, well, I want to start. No, no. My mum, my mum was a Tina Turner, Michael Jackson fan. My dad was, was madness and Pink Floyd and um, British ska and like the you know, punk revolutions. No, I don't I don't even know what, no, I mean, I think he was. He likes madness. That's fantastic. That's yeah. Like, like madness. He looked like, I, I just sports. like madness. Yeah. A little bit, I think, but not, not massively into punk. He, he, he kind of, you know, I think a bit of the Beatles, like he, he, but they just used to listen to it in the car. And, you know, I, I remember, you know, my mum was always listening to music, but I was never into music. Music was something that I worked on with my psychologist to listen to before a game, to use the emotive power. By the way, in what a flanker, and I, I, have, I had a coach who told me we couldn't listen to music. This is an, this is an international coach, and yeah, I listen to music on the bus, and it was crazy. Like, what? yeah, but I had that, I had that, I had that, I had, I had put my headphones on. And I was the only, bear in mind now, you see every player in every sport walking out with headphones in. I was the only player on a bus of, th of uh, 27 people wearing headphones. And when I'd sit in the changing room and it would piss other players off, take your ear off, take your headphones off. So I had to get, I had big cans, they got smaller and smaller and smaller. I used to have a notebook and they were like, don't look in your notebook, concentrate. So then I put my notes on my iPhone, on, the, on my iPod. Back in the day, you could move a Word document through iTunes. Then they were like, oh, you can't watch videos. And then I put that on the video iPod. I just was like, yeah, I'm not doing it. I just kept doing it. But I kept fucking just finding new ways of doing it. And now yeah, everybody coach, listens to music. Coach said, he said, well, you can't listen to music when you play. So why did, when you prepare, can you listen? Yeah, I was like, I that's ridiculous. Uh, yeah, so, so DJ. And then so music was, was kind of basically a tool that I used. Then I started going to Vegas a lot. I think I've been, been like 13 times or 14 times to Vegas. That's for the my, music? Or well, well it, was from, it was mainly for other things, but I, went, I used to go there and, you know, you, you would go outside and, and, you know, there'd be beautiful people, a DJ sitting at the front at a pool party. All the attention was on him. He'd be controlling the, the day. Everyone would love it. And I was like, well, I love, I love house music. I love attention and I love technology. Why would I not learn to become a DJ? So I went and did a, a, a lot of people I, I discovered who were DJs like rugby, Simon Dunmore from Defected, Seb Fontaine, Jaguar Skills, lots of guys. And I basically got a couple of lessons off people, but 
ultimately I need to learn in a, in a structured way. And so I went and did a course. At the end of the course, you got to do a, a set on the balcony of um, Ministry, uh, Ministry of Sound in London. Yeah. Did that, got an agent. Agent was like, well, you know, you're not going to make it as a DJ. And I said, well, fine, I just want to have fun. And he goes, well, you're not going to earn any money. And I was like, all right, we don't want it. And then they, then they booked me my three grand for my first gig for an hour. And I was like, I pretty much, I'll take that, mate. If that's if you think that's not enough money, I'll, I'll take that. And so I've been doing it nine years later. I've been doing it. I've played, you know, I mean, 8,000, 9,000 people crowds all over the place. Yeah, do my sevens. I play, I mean, I played, I've said I played at Ministry, I played in Ibiza, I played at Cafe Mambos. I've gone back to back with Bob Sinclair. I've done, I've done some amazing things. And for someone who is never going to make it as a DJ, I've had a good, good fun. I just want to keep chipping away at it because ultimately, it's my favorite thing to do. I, I just cannot get enough of it. So DJing and kind of what is what kind of audience did you generate? And, and really the question is more like, what is the future of, of, of rugby? Because you know, rugby has been very insular. And how does it, what you've done is break out of that audience and amplify the, you know, the kind of the evangelicals that you've had within rugby, but really brought a lot of other people to the table, you know, that are, that are fans of, of James Haskell. How does rugby um, do that? I mean, I think it's a tough one. I, th- I think, you know, we'll talk about sort of America being a sleeping giant of rugby. Obviously, the MLR's been going well, but I think, you know, and obviously what the Giltinis did and the kind of, you know, the, the hype they got over there and, and, and stuff. I think, you know, what, obviously being an Olympic sport in the sevens and obviously you guys got the World Cup at some point, you know, that should that could transform um, the game, because I think if you guys come come fully to the party and the investment, I think rugby. The problem is with rugby at the moment in the UK, it's doesn't sell itself particularly well. You know, they're obviously reducing the salary cap, TV revenues are down. You know that and that has a perverse effect. You know, rugby people who are in rugby think rugby is everything, but actually it's a third third tier sport or yeah. second or third tier sport. You know, it's not. We're not in competition with football. Football's won the race three times over before we've even left the blocks. It's. You know, we're in competition with cricket and other and other sports. It's about trying to make it more accessible, more understandable. I think it's too complicated. So what? how do you do that? I think you need to get kid, more kids into playing it and making it more entertaining. And, you know, even like things like you know, kids massively into e-gaming, you know, a, a good e-game, a good rugby game well, that they can play. It's a e-rugby game. I don't understand it. I know it's all. It's all. I mean, best games journal over rugby. You know, like that's the, that's still the benchmark for any rugby game ever. And and so they, they, yeah, I mean, it's just and it's just you know that's complicated. They tried to make it too realistic. So I would also make it a summer game. I don't think you know encouraging kids to play in the cold, rain, wet, mud is good. I think as a as a spectacle, we want to have fast paced rugby. Put it in the summer. You know, I think marketing needs to be done better. I think personalities and players. I think, you know, the problem with the UK media is, is that it builds you up and cuts you down and players are guarded and don't want to necessarily talk to the media. But I think we just got to do a better job of selling it. And, and and I don't think I don't think we are. And I don't and I think obviously now we've got stuff with the concussion, which is having a perverse effect, obviously. But again, people are forgetting it's a contact sport. It, you know, you can't ask cage fighters or boxers to hit softer. You can't ask other players to tackle lighter. What you can do is look after the players better, get neurologists to, to make the rules, manage the way players are brought back to training, you know, get brains, do whatever you need to do to manage the players better, to make them health, healthy, but still understand it is a contact sport. And if you don't want to get hurt, don't play contact sports. And I think, you know, for me, you know, there are personalities out there. It's just about getting them out there, selling the game better and trying to encourage people to to, to you know to, to play it. and I think the World 10 series was an interesting thing that obviously the art in the World Rugby have 
shut it down. Everyone shut it down. So I don't know whether it's going to necessarily happen, but maybe bring a version of that in. You know, kids don't play a lot of sport in schools or especially rugby. So how to encourage them to, you know, to do that stuff, really. Yeah. And it's, into, you know, I think rugby has always sold itself as a team game. And the money in rugby is the baby boomers, you know, those who can effectively pay to travel the World Cups. And yeah. We have not over the last 20 years brought in a new demographic that's based on star power. And I think that's a, that's a big missing piece. And I think that's an example of what you're doing for the future generation is really, really important. You brought up already a couple of others out there, but it's not, we're not seeing a lot of that where we're tying the kind of the, what rugby is to so many other things, you know, and it's mm-hmm. skateboarding is, is a street lifestyle, but basically effectively what NBA has done is it's not necessarily about the game. It's really about the lifestyle of the sport. We yeah. And sold the lifestyle of the sport. No. With but I think also, I know colleges in America play it, but, you know, when you're getting sixty to hundred thousand people watching a collegiate NFL game, no. you know, how do you build that up? How do you get people into it? How do you show people there's a viable, successful route into rugby? You know, how do you pick up all those NFL guys that don't make it, who don't think there's anything else, and get them to try something and play something different, and you know, encourage people? It's it's a, you know, it's a, it's a big sell, but I think the opportunity is there. It's just how it's managed. But again, it always comes down to money. These things, yeah. And there's some exciting things happening, which is really good. And I think you're seeing that with MLR, and you're starting to see some crossovers coming in, as you've seen in sevens, what we did there over the last decade, but in, in 15s as well. And there's a scholastic model here that's starting to form, like other sports, where you can play as a youth, play high school, get into college, and get into university because you're you know, a good student, but also good at, at rugby, which is you know similar to our traditional sports here, which will help. All those things will help. But again, it's bringing in net new fans who aren't rugby fans yet. Um, I think you're doing a fantastic job of that, hitting all these other buckets that really do that. So what is next for James Haskell? Well, so I'm trying to spend a bit more time in the studio to work some some new tracks. I want to make some stuff slightly harder stuff, which kind of suits my personality. Again, making the music thing was, was a learning curve. You know, I, I was making the music, getting it signed, loving it, but it wasn't music that I was ending up playing in my sets. I wanted some more high tempo stuff, and I, I kind of gonna go back to drawing board on that front. I we got a tour, sixteen day tour with Good Bad Rugby. I've got this this book to edit. In the UK, or are you guys coming stateside? All in the all in the UK at the moment, but we do want to do stuff. We were, we were actually going to work with a couple of MLR teams. And yeah, we offered partner group was in discussions with you guys. Yeah, we try trying to do some stuff and you know and showcase the game and come over there and do a tour to each each place and film social media and shed some light on it. But we'd love to have you. Yeah, but listen, we you know we would we would love to come over and do that. And then I think just generally you know trying to stay fit, healthy, manage manage my injuries and stuff. But I'll never be short of work. And I, I this time of the year is always difficult for me because I go a bit stir crazy. So like I'm doing another production course online. I'm doing a DJ course. I'm doing a load of other stuff just because I can't. I can't sit still and I don't do very well without activity. Inactivity is my enemy. So, you know, the long, great celebrity careers always end with acting. Is that next for you? Is that, <laughs> is that what's going to happen? Maybe, maybe. I don't know. Hask is like the UK's rock. I would show up. I absolutely love the rock. He's like my amazing. hero. Yeah, amazing what he's done. And if he can act, if him and Vinnie Jones can get acting roles in a movie, yeah. There has got to be a movie for me. I can't understand it. I can do raise the eyebrow. I could be security guard number three. I could be doorman number one. I can do the rock. I could, you know, 
The challenge is laid. You got to get into it. Okay, we're going to finish up with a rapid fire. Best nightclub? Oh, uh, uh, best nightclub. Uh, high in Ibiza. Okay, great. Hardest guys you've played against? Hardest guy I've played Henry Tuolangi. Best tour? Best tour, or oh, Australia 2016. You guys did very well. I just read that he's. Uh, first book uh, the other day which was it sounded like it was an epic call was it, was, it was great fun that yeah last question the one i always ask is if you were running the free jacks today what would you be focusing on so i look, I, I would focus on the individuality of my of my team and understand it, because actually when you look at a team and you go, right, what do you need to work and what do you need to develop and i always look at the core skills of the, of the game of where to start you know everyone gets through it complicated but actually you know, how you tackle running lines, footwork, speed, handling, part, you know, all these kind of stuff. Everybody, and even things like mobility, everybody probably has things that they all share that they need to do. So making sure that you prioritize the individuality of your team over just doing things for the sake of doing it and going, you know, if we need to, you know, who needs to work on their mobility? Well, you know, let's get a group together doing it. You know, we've got these guys for a, for a bit, a limited time per day. How can we make them better? What is it we can do? And, you know, understand that, you know, so much of the, the mental side is important and that you don't, that, you know, if you understand that they're in individuals and how to best prepare them. So like, in a lot of time through my career, I, we overtrained, we underperformed, we didn't look at the mental side, we didn't focus on the individuality of what we were trying to do. And, you know, look at what Harlequins do. Harlequins do less contact, less training, and at times play the best rugby because boys are having a good time and they're treated as individuals and they're like, listen, these guys need to work on this. These guys need to work on this. We have an overarching focus on mental health and, and the world is your oyster. That's great. Two books out. Uh, one, Ruck Me, just came out in the States. We can listen to that on Audible. You can also buy Hard Pat, Hard and Paper. I don't think it's on Kindle edition yet, Ruck Me here. I don't think. But soon enough, I would imagine. I love doing it on Audible. How did you do that, by the way? Like doing the, the audio for that. <laughs> yeah. So, so Ruck Me, yeah. So, What Flank and Ruck Me, they were both on. Um, she basically, I spent two, two full days. So you get in at eight in the morning, leave at six, seven in the evening, and it's just reading the book. But you basically, if you fuck up, stop, rewind. There's a great engineer, and he basically go right, go again. But actually, you didn't quite get the sense right. Stop, go again. By the by, the end of it, you're so tired. You can tell that from your your voice, which which is great. Like I, if I read, you know, three books to my kids at night, I'm like, okay, I'm done. I'm done. Yeah. <laughs> A lot of time, I, I know you shouldn't laugh at your own jokes, but some of the stuff and the voices, I was, uh, people were pissing themselves. So we'd have yeah. to stop. <laughs> I'd be in tears. They'd be like, fuck, shit, right. Go to say it again, burst into laughter. But, yeah. mate, again, it's like, because it was something for me to do, something for me to be better at, some opportunity for me to perform. It didn't feel like work, you know? And, and, and what if like, you can get on Kindle and everything else and wherever you get your books, folks, just make sure you get that. James, where can people find you on social? What's your uh, um, you, so you can find me on Instagram at James Haskell. I'm even on TikTok at James Haskell. You can find me on social uh, on Facebook, James Haskell Health and Fitness. Got a website, jameshaskell.com, which has got got everything. Just type in James Haskell on anything, and something <laughs> will appear. I can't. I want to apologise firstly because a lot of other weird shit will appear as well, which I'm sorry, not sorry for. But most of the time, just type in James Haskell and you find me. James, brilliant. Well, let's get you to Boston this spring and run a DJ set for one of our matches. Fantastic. I'm in. I'm in. Hundred percent. Good man, thank you very much. Cheers, mate.